Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Lieutenant Colonel Amy McGrath. After graduating from the U.S. Naval Academy, McGrath joined the Marine Corps and flew 89 combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. In 2002, she became the first woman in the Marine Corps to fly in combat in the F-18. Well, um, I saw a History Channel documentary, actually, when I was about 12 years old. I was doing a project for middle school, and I, my father had said, well, why don't you watch the History Channel, because they have some things on. I had to do something on aircraft in World War II or something. And I watched this documentary on military aviation and um, was taking notes on the World War II part. Uh, once that was over, I continued to watch it, and I, when they got to the part of the high performance jets that we have in today's day and age, I sort of just fell in love. I saw these aircraft um, flying onto the backs of aircraft carriers and basically just said, that is the coolest thing I have ever seen. And then there was this old crusty naval aviator that got on and was interviewed in this. And he said, well, anybody can be a pilot, but if you wanna be the best, you gotta be a naval aviator. I basically just said as a 12 year old girl, well, shit, I want to be the best. And so that's why I, I sort of fell in love with naval aviation. I went to the library, took every single book I could find about naval aviation. I memorized all the aircraft carriers. I knew all of the jets that we had at the time, A6, A7, you know, F14, all that stuff. And I quickly realized that there were no women doing these jobs. Um, and I couldn't understand that because I was like, wow, this is a really cool job. Why are there no women doing this? And that's when I realized um, there was a federal law prohibiting women from uh, competing, uh, prohibiting women from being on aircraft carriers or from flying high performance jets in that manner. And that is when I had to sit down. I sat down with my parents and, and had to learn, well, how do you change a law, right? Um, and that's the beauty of this country, right? We can change laws. But how does that happen? Well, it happens from Congress. It happens from the president, the House of Representatives, the Senate. They change the law. You can advocate for change, but you can't change it yourself. So I became an advocate. At 12 years old, I wrote my member of Congress. I wrote both my senators. My member of Congress wrote me back a, a letter, which I still have today, that basically says... You know, if you read between the lines, it basically says you're a girl, go do something else. Um, but I didn't quit. I wrote every member of the House and Senate Armed Services Committees. 
um, a letter and told them who I was and that I, I think they should change the law and here's why. And I got several letters back uh, that were just like my congressman's, you know, pretty conservative guy, like no change. We don't want to change anything. And then I got several letters back on the other side, which basically was radical at the time. But if you read the letter today, the words go like this. Uh, Our military exists to fight and win the nation's wars. And we should have the best people in those positions. And you ought to be able to compete. And if you're good enough, you ought to be able to be given a shot to get in that cockpit. And I got to tell you, that was like radical in the late 80s, (laughs) early 90s. but it makes so much sense now. Um, and I got lucky because uh, I worked very hard in high school. And then when I was a senior in high school, the, the year was 1992. We had more women elected to Congress in that election in that year than ever before in history. We had a new president elected who was more open-minded on these matters. And the law changed three months before my graduation from high school. So when I left home three weeks after graduating here in Kentucky from high school to raise my right hand in Annapolis, all the doors for what I wanted to do in my life were opened up to me because of those, uh, the changing of that law. I, I went to the Naval Academy thinking I would go into the Navy. I didn't know much about Marines. I had three uncles who were Marines, but I, I didn't know much about them. What I found when I was at Annapolis was I was very much into challenges, and that's why I wanted to go there. And about two years through the four-year program there, I really reached a point where I felt like I had um, – I was doing really well, and this wasn't so much of a challenge for me anymore. And the Marines provided that challenge. I mean, I remember we did sort of MOS mixers or mixers where the different communities kind of try to recruit midshipmen. And so you'd have the submariners over there in the corner and they would try to recruit uh, the guys to, you know, that were super smart and, and knew a lot of numbers to go with them. And you'd have the surface warfare officers that would have the donuts over there trying to recruit the, the SWOs. And then you have the naval aviators that had their sunglasses on and they were recruiting for pilots in the Navy. And the Marines were kind of in the other corner and they would just stand there and just wait for you. And you'd walk up to them and, and you'd say, well, I think I might want to be a Marine. And, and you could just sense that they were more evaluating you than you were. You were not they weren't recruiting you. It was more like, are you good enough to be one of us? And that was very appealing to me. I wanted that challenge. The two seat version of the F-18 was also only in the Marine Corps at that time. Uh, of course, it would later be in the in the Navy, but at that time, it was only in the Marine Corps. And so that was also another pull for me. And I loved it. Um, it was everything it was, you know, advertised to be. Tough, elite, but also an incredibly close-knit family that cared about performance and excellence. Well, flight school was a lot different than my Marine Corps training. Marine Corps training was a lot more on unit-focused teamwork, unit over self, that sort of thing. And then you go to flight school and you're kind of on your own. Uh, You don't really have a unit. 
you're trying to master the ability to fly this machine and you have to do it and only you can do it. Nobody can do it for you. And so it was a fun time. It was a challenging time. My flight school was an integrated flight school at Pensacola. We had not only Navy and Marine Corps officers, but we had Coast Guard aviators and we had um, a number of international aviators, including Saudis and Italians and Germans. So it was really a fun, cool experience, a couple years to get your wings. Also very challenging. Uh, Not everybody makes it through. And then you're off to, for me, the Operational Marine Corps, where they sent you for a year to learn how to fly the F-18. And then you're, you're in your operational tours. It was really fun. On 9-11, I had just joined my squadron, my first operational squadron, I think around like June of that year in 2001. And so I was like the most junior aircrew in the squadron. I had the basic qualifications and that was pretty much it. And um, the morning of September 11th, I was on the uh, West Coast at Miramar Marine Corps Air Station and uh, assigned to VMFA, uh, so uh, Marine All Weather Fighter Attack Squadron 121, the Green Knights there. And I got a a phone call from my sister about 6 o'clock or 6.30 in the morning, West Coast time, saying, hey, turn on the TV. There's a plane just ran into the World Trade Center and... I hung up the phone and thought she was talking about a Cessna or something. And I turned on the TV right as the second plane was hit. I hit the uh, second tower. And I knew, you know, my gosh, what is going on? The next thing I know, I get another phone call from the duty officer in the squadron saying, get your rear end in here right now. Uh, We need all air crew uh, immediately into the ready room. It just happens that I lived close to the base. Um, I only live like five minutes away from the front gate. Most aviators who were more senior and had families lived further away. That's where they could get a house was further away. Well, if you remember, 9-11 was a very confusing day for all of us, but it was also confusing for the military. We, we went to a higher DEFCON level, and in that confusion, they locked the gates to the base, so no one could get in or out. So right as I came onto the base, I was in, a few minutes after I got my car on base, they locked the gates down. And so the more senior pilots and, and weapon systems officers could not, they were stuck at the gate. They couldn't get in. So when I got into the ready room, my operations officer looked at, there were probably only five or six of us who actually made it into the ready room out of an air crew of maybe 30 and he looked around and I could sense that he was, my name was not at the top of the list of the people he wanted to put in this aircraft that was fully loaded with air-to-air missiles ready to go. And, but he had to because he didn't have enough air crew. So he, he said, McGrath, you know, get suited up, you're going. And so that's what I did. We, we got suited up. We went to the other side of the airfield in the combined arms loading area over there which is where they have all of the the live ordnance, started up the jet with six air-to-air missiles, taxied over to the the end of runway 24 left, and for the next three and a half, four hours, waited with all systems go, ready to launch within 20 seconds. If we were to be given the order, 
hey, there's an airliner that is not listening or is going towards Los Angeles, going towards San Diego, you're it. And so that was my 9-11 morning sitting in the cockpit. Um, as a backseater, I was a weapons officer. So I was the one responsible for the radar and, and the, the weapons and that sort of thing. So it was um, a surreal moment for me. I never trained to do something like this. I, I call it the unthinkable at the time. But nevertheless, I was ready. I was ready to do what, what Uncle Sam, you know, would have ordered me possibly to do. The first deployment to um, for Operation Enduring Freedom um, happened really quickly after 9-11. We couldn't go immediately because Afghanistan was a failed state. They didn't have the runways available, and we had to do the diplomatic um, work to get into some of these other countries where we could fly out of, um, namely Kyrgyzstan. So we landed in Kyrgyzstan in early 2002. Um, it was an old Soviet bomber base, uh, Tupolev II bomber base, and I talk about this in my, in my book, that we sort of rebuilt. I remember literally landing there in an F-18, rolling down to the end of the runway as the runway, the part of the runway is still being built. And then pulling off to the side and getting out of the aircraft. And the next thing after I get out of the aircraft and sort of take care of yourself after a long flight, the next thing to do was to pitch a tent <laughs> for where we were going to work and where we were going to live. So it was expeditionary, just like you read about, you know, in, in World War II time frame, we're, we're literally rolling in and, and, and pitching a tent, um, building up this base from scratch. That was early 2002. Five days after we got there, we started our first combat missions into Afghanistan. And it was a pretty confusing time. We were supporting troops on the ground, mostly special forces who were already on the ground, uh, but a number of international troops were on the ground, U.S. Army troops. So here I was, I had trained with just Marines for most of my time. And then my first combat deployment, I think we probably supported Marines maybe 10% of the time. The rest was a coalition. And so that was eye-opening. We um, provided close air support for them. So if they were being shot at, they could have air support during that time frame. So that was my first deployment to Afghanistan. And then um, a few months after we got back from Afghanistan, we deployed to Iraq for Operation Iraqi Freedom in early 2003. Uh, we did the initial Operation Southern Watch for a couple of months once we got there, and then the war kicked off, I think, in March. And it was just, you know, 25 days of back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back missions every day. Um, we, uh, we expended a lot of ordnance, and it was, it was sort of the wild, wild west. Um, but supporting Marine forces primarily in that area, going north up into Baghdad and, and beyond. And so that was an extremely intense combat tour. And uh, probably the most of all my combat tours, that was by far the most intense. 
the Afghan tour, um, we did not drop as much ordinance. You had to be very careful about what you were doing all the time. We were careful on, on all missions, but there were times in Afghanistan where we would just drop down to, you know, a real low altitude just to disperse crowds. We never dropped a bomb at all, but, you know, that our forces were felt like they were being um, closed in on by a crowd and we wanted everybody to know we were there. And I always say those were the best missions because um, we didn't have to destroy lives or property. We helped our forces just by, you know, making noise. Um, but Afghanistan was a lot of waiting. It was a lot of, um, some people say, drilling holes in the sky, 90% probably, just up there waiting and being ready if something happened. In Afghanistan, the, the missions were very long. We went from Kyrgyzstan through Tajikistan into northern Afghanistan just to get down into the area of responsibility was probably a two and a half hour flight with some refueling along the way. So the missions in Afghanistan were, you know, seven or eight hours long um, getting there and back. And then the missions in Iraq, you know, we were doing three missions a day. So my my time frame was early morning. I would um, do the first brief at probably three or four in the morning, um, launch at like 5 a.m. or 5.30 in the morning, and we'd be back, you know, by 6.30. We'd debrief, um, launch again at, you know, eight o'clock in the morning, be back by nine, uh, launch again at 10.30, and be back by, you know, 11.30, come back, do a debrief with intelligence, have some food or some, some lunch or whatever, and then I would work on, I was a schedules officer, so I'd work on the next day's schedule all the way until probably four or five o'clock at night. And then I would go to bed. Uh, you know, I'd try to get some sleep because I had to be up at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. to do the whole thing all over again. So it was just extremely intense. You didn't have time to think about your targets. To You didn't have time to reflect on what you were doing. Um, you just didn't have time. Uh, and I did a lot of that reflection, you know, when I came home, back to the States. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, 
and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. I was um, doing an operation called Bright Star with my units. I was a fairly junior um, F-18 backseater at the time. I went overseas to do this with the Egyptian Air Force, this exercise, and they had never seen a woman in an F-18 cockpit. I remember opening the, the canopy and coming out and it looked like the, the Egyptian men, their heads were going to explode or something. They had never seen anything like it. And uh, we did this exercise for a couple of weeks. And at the end, the commander of the Egyptian Air Forces asked our commander to uh, have a soccer match between the two units. And in Egypt, um, you know, they take their soccer very, very seriously. So they had like an actual team. Uh, We had just a bunch of ragtag Marines. uh, And my commanding officer at the time knew I played in college, knew I played Division One for Navy uh, soccer and said, would you play? And I said, sure, I haven't played in in many years, but I can I could try. And we went out there and um, I was the only woman on the field. The stadium was filled with all men in the bleachers, and it was probably two or three uh, times the number of people I had ever played in front of in my entire um, career. And so um, initially, the the commander of the Egyptian forces um, wanted me to play in long pants because I was a woman, and my commanding officer, to his credit, said no. She's uh, going to play on with green on green, which is just green shorts and a green shirt like everybody else. And I did. And we I was by no means the best player on that field, but I could hold my own. I mean, I was a Division I uh, soccer player in college. And, uh, you know, at that point in my 20s, I was in pretty good shape. And uh, at one point, I went up for a header with the commander of their unit there, um, and he felt down to the, the ground and I stayed on my feet and the entire crowd just lit up, just roared. And um, at the end of that, we lost like seven to one or something. These guys were really good. But the uh, general for the Egyptian Air Force who was there watching walked down the line of all the players and handed me the MVP plaque and the crowd roared again. And I was just like, wow, you know, this is really cool because um, I really felt like I was changing minds there. You know, they had never seen a woman compete against men um, on the soccer field or in the cockpit. And there I was, um, 26 years old or something. It was, uh, it was an incredible experience. And frankly, that's what I loved about the Marine Corps. I really loved that. You know, when people say to me, would you recommend my daughter go into the Marine Corps? It's such a hard service and that sort of, and and there are some faults with it, obviously. But what I loved about the Marine Corps is at the end of the day, performance really mattered more than anything. Yes, you had to prove yourself. Yes, as a woman, maybe it was harder initially because everybody's sort of skeptical and it's such a male dominated environment. But you know what? Um, At the end of the day, you know what mattered? Did the bombs hit the target on time? Could you refuel? Could you land on the back of an aircraft carrier, you know, when you were needed to? Um, And that is 
what people cared about at the end of the day, nothing else. When you're going through TBS, the basic school, it's not an easy school in Quantico. It's six months long. Um, when you're going through it, you, you, they call it the big suck. Uh, but it's not a fun time. But it gives you a real appreciation for being on the ground. And although I never trained as an infantry officer, I, I was a basic rifle platoon commander. That's what they train you to do. And it's not something you can learn in a book. You have to do it. You have to go out and, and understand terrain by walking it, by seeing it, by knowing, you know, you have to understand what it's like to not have radio communications, to have the friction and fog of war, as they say. You can't recreate it completely in training, but you can get a pretty good sense of what those things are like. And so um, being able to talk that talk and understand it, I think when I went into the cockpit to have a sense of what it's like on the ground was so important. And also who you're talking to on the ground in the Marine Corps, we send forward air controllers who are aviators on their second tour down to be the um, communicators to the pilots up in the air because they are the ones that understand what it's like to be in the cockpit, that we also can't see it all. We might be, you know, 20,000 feet ahead, uh, above, but, you know, you've got to talk big to small, for example, when you're, when you're talking about where you're at and trying to talk a pilot on. You know, we can't focus on just one thing at any time. We're, we're constantly juggling a lot of balls. We're constantly listening to different radios. So you have to be succinct, you know. We don't have time to mess around with chit-chat. Um, and so all of these things are very helpful, and to have that training is super important. And then also, you know, the people on the ground. I mean, you may not know them personally, but the Marine Corps is such a small service that you probably know of somebody. And that makes it really personal. I will never forget one of the convoys that I did close air support in the first few days of the Iraq war. So when the Marines were still pushing north and they had battles like Nazaria and, and places like that, on the ground in a, as it was a Marine logistician officer who was my teammate at the Naval Academy. She was a, a soccer teammate of mine, um, Corey Thornton. And, you know, I didn't know this at the time when I was doing the mission, but later on I found out that she was, you know, one of the leaders of this convoy going up that I supported. And, you know, you, you think about that and you're like, these are my peeps, man. I mean, I, I train with them. They're my friends. And you never know when, you know, your actions above are going to directly help them. That's what it's all about. That's what marine aviation is all about. And that's why I loved it. So in my first tour in Afghanistan, my first combat mission was actually the first combat mission for the squadron itself. And that was not because I was <laughs> a senior aviator or had the most qualifications or anything like that. It was simply a matter of uh, the people that were assigned to do the first missions for the squadron were all of the senior ones, um, 
pilots and wizos. Um, and we had really bad weather that first uh, 24-hour period, and they couldn't launch. And so they ran out of what's called crew day. And uh, the sort of B team, which I was on, uh, came in 20 hours later, and we had had uh, had enough sleep to when the when the clouds broke and when the weather broke, and we were able to do our first mission. We were the ones that took it, and so I, I that's how I became the the in the cockpit of the first mission for um, the Green Knights going into Afghanistan in 2002. After that mission, it was about seven or eight hours long, and everybody was very interested in the debrief. Um, so we, we talked about that, and one of my fellow um, aviators uh, came up to me and said, hey, you know, I think I think Skipper just said you're the first woman in the Marine Corps to, to have ever flown a combat mission in an F-18. And I was thinking, oh, great. Okay, I hope I'm not the last. And I I just, it didn't really hit me that hard because I had so much work to do. Uh, it is a, as a weapon systems officer, as a pilot, you not only fly missions, but you have a ground job. So when you get done with these eight-hour missions, you, you had other work to do. And I was more focused on that, frankly. So I sort of didn't think about it too much um, at the time. I knew that I had bad eyes uh, and so that the back seat was always um, an option, but that we were changing and that we were, the military was starting to allow LASIK and PRK for certain people. And so um, I wanted to be a part of that. And I, I was like, wow, I've done these great things in the back seat and I've sort of been at the pinnacle of what you can do as a backseater. As both my combat tours, I had achieved what I set out to achieve. Um, I had, you know, all the quals in the book. I, had, I was an air combat tactics instructor. I was a graduate of MDTC, which is the Marine Corps Division uh, Tactics course, which is kind of like the Marine Corps version of Top Gun. And I had, so I had done it all. And I wanted a challenge. I wanted even more of a challenge. And I remember the the generals and the colonels saying, well, you know, you're really going to hurt your career if you do this. You're, you're very well respected and you have all these quals here. You're going to drop down to the, the bottom of the totem pole again. And, um, you, you know, do you really want that? And I, I, I took a step back and realized, yeah, I really do. Because the goal was never to become a general officer, you know, it wasn't even squadron command. It was, I wanted to fly in combat and I wanted to be a front seater if I could and fly this machine. And if that meant that I was going to, you know, not be promoted or something, that that to me was secondary. So I got my eyes fixed. I put in a package. I did not make it the first year. I was rejected. Um, which is another lesson, you know, I just stayed at it. And, and then I reapplied the next year and I got it and was thrilled to be able to um, <laughs> become a lowly flight student again. And that's what I did. I went back to flight school. I was um, uh, an O3, a captain. All of my flight instructors were also O3. So I was the same rank as all of the instructors. I had more combat time than almost all of my flight instructors but, you know, I, I, I got through the training and sort of had to swallow my, my pride at times and, and make it through that, um, that training again. And, and it was fun. 
when I finished flight school as a front seater, I then had to go back to the fleet replacement squadron, a different one this time. I went through Oceana, um, the Navy's um, version of the F-18 fleet replacement squadron. There were there were three at the time, one at Lemoore, one at Miramar, and one in Oceana, Virginia. And so I got assigned to Oceana, and I did a year there, and I learned how to fly the front seat of an F-18. And also I learned how to carry a call which was something I didn't do as a backseater and had never done because we didn't go out on carriers. The two-seat version of the F-18 did not do that in the Marine Corps. So this was all new. I was now doing single cockpit operations where I was the only one um, in the cockpit. I didn't have a WIZO. And to go through um, carrier training was tough, but I loved it and made it through and lots of stories there. And then from there, I went back to Miramar Marine Corps Air Station um, reassigned to 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing and and MAG-11, and was reassigned back to um, Fighter Attack Squadron 121, So, which was my old squadron. All new people, of course, but um, I didn't have to buy a new patch, so that was good. And uh, went back there, and we we deployed um, to Japan. We did a a Far East called uh, UDP deployment out there. Australia, Guam. We also did um, lots of exercises in Nevada and Alaska and, and all up and down the West Coast. So in my sec- in my tour as a front seater, I did not deploy in the cockpit to the Middle East, but it, I did deploy um, to Afghanistan again, this time as a uh, F-18 planner. So as a fixed wing fighter planner on the ground. So my job there was really to translate operations and what fighter assets could do for the Marines on the ground. So I went all around Helmand Province with the folks on the ground uh, planning for their future operations. And that was also quite an experience. I always tell people um, Afghanistan is not a black and white country. It's not a black and white war or conflict that we've been in the last uh, 20 years. People in America tend to think of war as, you know, we're good guys and we're going to fight the bad guys. And um, that's kind of the way we think as Americans. And when you go over to Afghanistan, you realize that there really are no good guys and there are no bad guys or very few of both. Most people most people in Afghanistan are survivors. They will be with you if it helps them survive and their families survive. And they will be against you if it helps them and their families survive. It's not personal. They're not an ideologically against America or democracy or any of that stuff. It is all about survival. And you learn that pretty quickly when you go over there. Um, I was a, a board member for what's called the Detainee Review Board, and I was sent from Helmand Province up to Parwan Province, which is in the northeast area, north of Kabul. What the idea here is there's these um, detainees or prisoners that the Americans take off the battlefield, and we detain them. We put them in, a, in jail, essentially. Um, and some of them had been there for years, And each one of them at one point will get a review. You know, who are these people? Why are they still in jail? Are they still a threat to American forces? Um, And should we release them or not? 
And this board consisted of three military officers, American military officers, not lawyers, but operators like myself. Uh, the other two gentlemen on the board were army officers, and then they had me. I think I was the first woman that had ever been on a detainee review board as well. Um, and they cycle them in, new boards every month. So I did a month um, there in Parwan, and I saw probably 85 or so detainees. We probably did four a day where you review their case, all the evidence against them, how they were caught, what they were doing, and you get to talk with them. And you ask them questions and they can have um, witnesses that can support them or, you know, tell us who they are and, and whether they should be released or not. And you really get to see just the complexity of the conflict when you talk to these people. Some of these guys were and they were all men. Some of them are really bad. Some of them were um, folks who could speak several languages, and they clearly were a threat. If we released them, they would go out and um, start plotting against us the moment they got out. So some of them were pretty cut and dry cases, but not many. The majority were, were very hard to determine. I always talk about this one case where there was a young man. By the time we had seen him, he was probably 16 or 17 years old, but he had been in the jail. He had been in the in the prison for three or four years at this point. So when he was caught, he was like you know, 12. And um, he was caught because he had they had we had identified his fingerprints on tape that was on an IED that was put underneath a bridge. And, of course, the, the Afghan boy doesn't understand fingerprints. He doesn't know anything about that, uh, can't read or write. He's a, you know, you start to pull the string on this kid, and he had lost his parents. He had no family, um, and he had, like, three sheep or three goats or something. And he was, uh, somebody came up to him and basically said, you know, I'm going to give you X amount of money where you can buy three more goats and a wife because you got to buy your wife there and you can start a new life if you just put this device under that bridge over there. And so he, he took that and he said, I can do that. And he did it. And, and we caught him and we nabbed him and we threw him in jail. And you can say to yourself, well, yes, he did something very bad. Of course, he knew that that IED was going to kill people and, and all that. He knew what it was for. Yeah, he also wanted to start a life. And so, you know, he wasn't ideologically motivated. He didn't hate America. This is a story that you see over and over again uh, in Afghanistan. It's just an example of, do we keep this guy in jail for another five years? Is that the right answer? You know, do we release him? Would it matter to you if that ID had blown up? Would it matter to you if that IED had killed Americans? Do we keep him in jail for another 10 years because it killed America? How, how about if it killed Afghans? How about if it didn't blow up? I mean, we can't keep him in jail forever. But it just shows you the complexities of how the people think there and what the reasoning is um, for their actions. And you can, you know, I could have a number of 
of examples of people growing poppy, for example, for their family. Um, the culture there is a culture of where if somebody comes to your door, you don't turn them away. So a lot of times families and people that will take in like Taliban, for example, um, and they do it because that's their culture. They're not necessarily doing it because they are with the Taliban, you know, and, and want to hurt Americans, but yet they get caught in the crossfire. So it's, it's just so difficult and such a, a, a hard, complex area. And what I think about the pullout, look, I can't fault the current president for making the decision to pull out. I lost a, a colleague in my second tour in Afghanistan, somebody I had worked with every day for like four or five months right alongside, and he never came home from a, a H-1 helicopter mission one day. He was shot down. And I couldn't, I, I couldn't tell you why he died. And that was a big part of me feeling like, what are we doing here? Are we helping? What, what, what is, why does Sugar Bear have to die? I mean, what, 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 what is the goal here? We're not going to change this culture. Um, and, and so I can't fault the current president. I, I just feel like we, we have to do it in a responsible way. Um, we have to protect the translators and those people that we promised we would protect for them putting their lives and their families' lives at risk for us, knowingly doing that, we have an obligation to protect them and to help them. Um, but I have mixed feelings, probably like many veterans, uh, about the pullout. I want Afghanistan to succeed. I want the women there to have rights uh, and the girls there to go to school. But at the same time, I, um, I don't know how much how long we should be there, and is it really in American interest? That was Lieutenant Colonel Amy McGrath. To learn more about Amy, check out her memoir, Honor Bound, an American story of dreams and service. You can also find Amy on Twitter at at Amy McGrath KY. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.